0: Hey, outliers. We're back with entrepreneur and investor Ryan Boykin to explore the ideas, influences, and lessons that propelled him to the top of his game. Let's jump back in with Ryan Boykin. Okay, we're back with Ryan Boykin to dig into a bunch of fascinating stuff, habits, tools, routines, influences. Thank you so much for your time, Ryan. I'm really looking forward to this. Rock on. So we always kind of start with the same question and we talked about it a little bit at the end of your last interview, just in terms of the things that you do to put into yourself so that you can perform at the highest level. So I'll ask a slightly different question, which is when you're just take a weekday, since I know your routine varies during the week and on the weekend, take a weekday, talk us through some of the things that you'll do on a weekday. And some of them can be negotiable, non-negotiables, but what are some of the things that you're doing in terms of habits and routines that really set you up for success?
1: Okay. That's a good one. Typical weekday. I'm up pretty early and absolute non-negotiable is I head to our attic. We have a building that's located close to downtown by the aquarium in downtown Denver. For those of you that happen to know this region, it's an old Victorian building. And it was one of my first forays in understanding the value of unused, unoptimized space this beautiful 14 foot high ceiling attic. It was full of cobwebs and rafters. And a few years ago, we started a company inside of it called Archipelago Clubs. And we outfitted it into being sort of a Bohemian hangout spot. And we host maybe 25 or 30 programs a month up there for people to gather in a small communal fashion. Well, it turns out at six a m every morning there 's nobody there except for me and it 's such a sacred place and it 's interesting to like sort of invest into space and moving a place from a place to a space and giving a heart. And it's funny, like a lot of times I wake up in the morning and I just have to race there to go sit down and to really develop my relationship with myself and with spirit, my body. And so that's a definite non negotiable. It's something I just picked up over the last couple of years, and it came from a very difficult moment I had with my health. And it was something that completely healed me from a physical standpoint and just so grateful for that you know other things that i do on a daily basis i fast daily i do sort of time restricted because i find that my mental processing speed is so much faster when i'm not eating and when my body's operating off of fat versus sugar i think that the quote that i read is that we digest for four to six hours after having eaten and all of that is energy that i would like to place somewhere else i used to be completely addicted by food i mean i was Governed by it. And so, one of the big things that happened to me over the last several years of this is I got to a place where my relationship with food became healthy. I'm very food motivated. I love delicious food. But to be at a place where I can say, I'm going to choose to do something versus my stomach and my metabolism, because I have such a raging metabolism, which is a great problem to have, but still something I had to resolve. So, I'm very strict on my diet and my fasting during the week. Every day I do at least 200 push-ups because I never have time for exercise. And so between phone calls, I'll just knock out 50 or 100. So a couple hundred a day. Every day I kiss my wife. Every day I play with my kid. Every day I'm at the dinner table with genuinely engaging with them. And I turn off my phone and my computer all the time. There's tons of times that you won't get back to me on text message and all that kind of stuff. And those are probably the non-negotiables. And of course, I work a lot. Sometimes I get worn down at looking at my computer and my screen. I don't see those as personally fun devices. I see them as work devices. And so people that want to interact with me on those devices, that's a real challenging one for me. I just am really slow. And then sometimes I lament that because that's the best way to keep in touch with people overseas. And I have deep relationships overseas. But that's one of my Achilles heels.
0: That's probably one of the best, most comprehensive answers I've gotten to that question. So that was great. I want to ask just a little bit more of what you do in the morning. And I'm curious if there are specific practices that you do. Those could be journaling. Those could be sitting down. Like what helps you get oriented or what helps you? What's the process you use or the tools you use to get to know yourself better?
1: Yeah, I think my favorite way to start the morning actually is to ride my bike to the office. I get a little bit of the physical in. I'm very physically oriented. I find that I'm better when I physically exert. But... Usually I'm riding my bike to this attic spot if I'm doing that. And I can't do that every day of the week. And then I get there and typically I'm going to sit down and it's usually a guided meditation. That's going to get me into a headspace that is very strong and enables me to work on me instead of work in me in the same corollary that you need to work on your business sometimes instead of just in your business. And generally because of the practice and having given myself an hour, which was unfathomable for me and when I began this practice a couple of years ago, I never thought I could sit for an hour. But when you go that deep, then when you come out of that, you're more in tune to assess some of the more profound components of your life. And so I almost never can go directly into work. Actually, I have to take time to get to a point where I could even think about working and checking email. And so I don't journal every day. I journal when I have something on my mind that I need to, frankly, have therapy with. My journal is a therapeutic device, first and foremost, I've noticed Secondarily, it's a device through which I solve problems and helps me to think through very complex issues I'm working with internally or externally. And then I'd say tertiary, uh, third for my uh, journal, it's oftentimes an epiphany that I might have or something that happened that somebody said, and I said, geez, I just need to go deeper on that topic to understand what it means to me. And I guess from a final perspective, sometimes I just wanna remember a day and it actually turns into a diary. And I had an experience that I say, This is an experience I want to share with my son one day. And maybe my journals turn into something where he might glean one aspect of what the day in the life of his dad was in the early 2000s. My grandfather was born in the early 1900s and he passed on to us a memoir when he passed away. And I remember reading it when I was 18 years old and it was meaningful to understand the human experience and to understand the plight of how we have run over a hundred year period and how much progress we've actually made. That is a statement to the positivity through which we actually live in. And you have to see that from stepping back, that long-term we talked about, the forest of the trees. You can't see it when you're on the micro. And then from journaling, usually some stretching and some push-ups. And then I usually go to the bathroom, and then I can usually start my day in terms of work. The most
0: important part of that bathroom break. I want to talk a little bit about leaving something, using the journal to one. I love that concept of there was an idea or a quote or something somebody said, and you want to go deeper on that. And I also love that note that you said of noting things that you want to do with your son and just having something written down that you can pass on. And the one thing I want to share is my wife, who is a much better person than I am in almost every way. She's an amazing person, but she started a practice with both of our sons where every single year on their birthday, she writes them a letter and puts it into an envelope and I am just getting started with that. I'm far behind her by a couple of years. But something like that practice would have been so profound for me because I feel like just to have that dialogue, to be able to open those back up, like what more meaningful thing can you pass on? This seems pretty incredible.
1: That's a good one. I'm writing it down, my it's man. It's a good one. Yeah, write that down in
0: your journal. You can work on that tomorrow. <laughs> so going on to tools, in all of these questions, these may or may not be things that you use, but they're interesting ways to explore. And so with tools, I know that you want to use your body a lot. You need to use the computer a lot. You don't necessarily like those devices. They're not fun devices. But are there physical or digital tools that you use? You can take this question in any direction that you want, but are there things that you just have had a profound connection with, or like favorite purchases, favorite things, or things that that you use that you found over time and just really rely on?
1: I'm a pretty simple guy. I even think a minimalist style lifestyle would be really fun for me. That's not my world, not even close. Someday, someday maybe. The greatest tool that I have is probably my computer because I can do so much with it. But I can't take a phone call ever if I have to hold the phone to my head. So I must have some kind of earpiece through which to talk. I just simply cannot do it. I do use tech a lot, but I'm not sort of like addicted to it in a sexy way I want to use it for the tool that it is and I want it to work pretty well so I'm probably going to fall flat on this one a little bit I'm a little bit in the analog tool world and I think that the reason why I am is because I actually get exhausted with the digital tool and tech tool world. And I find that when I invest into it more deeply, I actually get a little bit more reactionary, a little bit more herky-jerky, a little bit more like, look at this shiny thing. As opposed to my greatest decisions and the greatest operation and execution that we do in our businesses is in those moments that I say I stopped and I thought and I perceive this to be the most accurate direction. And now I work towards that. There's a little different cadence there to how we would guide our lives, I think.
0: That's great. I asked you this question before and you had a fantastic answer. So I'm very excited to ask it again, which is, what are your superpowers? And you can take this, you know, I think it would be interesting to maybe explore it as an entrepreneur, as an investor, and maybe as a human. But how would you answer that question? How do you think about that?
1: First thing I'd say is that there's no chance I have a superpower. It's a very becoming and complimentary question, so thank you for that. But I just really feel like I'm just a guy. I do think I work really hard. That is a superpower in and of itself. A lot of people don't embrace or don't have the natural sort of disposition towards hard work. I have that naturally. I'm really grateful for that. I do think I'm quite strong in assessing risk and reward. You know, the other thing that I think about sometimes, Daniel, is we don't put enough emphasis on emotional intelligence, on EQ. And I don't think I'm particularly strong on this. I know I wasn't when I was younger. I really was abrasive many times. But I do think that it's really quite possible, and I don't think that our society recognizes it, it's possible to be superhuman with your EQ. And those that I've met in my life that are superhuman with their EQ oftentimes don't get the credit that they deserve the lubricant they are to a community, to society, to individual interaction, the gravity through which they pull people closer to them. When people don't even realize that's why they're being pulled closer to them. I think that there's a superpower there. I don't know. I don't think that I have it, but I've seen it before. And I always try to aspire to learn more. And we're sort of in a society that we say, oh, this person's a genius. And genius speaks to IQ which is equally important. But I think that when we're governed by 8 billion people trying to figure out how to make sense of this place, the EQ is more important.
0: I couldn't agree more. If we're going to come together as billions of people around the planet with a bunch of different beliefs, with a bunch of different values, EQ is going to be the only way over time. On the flip side of that question, what do you struggle with personally, professionally, and how have you worked on those things over time?
1: I do struggle with saying no still. I said I have a hard no button. But I do realize that if I say yes, I am such a madman on fulfilling my commitment that it actually can be a little bit psychologically detrimental and that I have to be a little bit better at saying no to things. And I don't want to go so far that health is in jeopardy in terms of how deeply I try to fulfill that commitment. So I, I do think that I struggle with that a bit. I think that sometimes I struggle with expecting that people around me, I expect a lot. I think it's unreasonable at times what I expect, and I've gotten better at understanding that, but I would be a lot stronger if I tempered that a bit.
0: Are there any people, these can be modern, can be historical figures, can just be people in your life, and you you mentioned a couple in the last interview, that have had a profound impact on you, and can you share a story and insight, something you've learned from one of them?
1: First and foremost, always will be my mother and father. I am the luckiest man alive for the family I was brought up in. We talk about where we're lucky. And I often think to myself, the old proverb or adage of too much was given, much is required. I mean, I feel a sense of responsibility through what I had in my upbringing with my family. But to speak specifically about an experience or a person, one person that comes to mind is Dan Friedlander, and he's passed away since this happened. But he was the first person that ever said to me that he believed that I could run a billion dollar business. And I was very young at the time. And it occurs to me how incredibly important it is, particularly when you're young, but I think at all stages in your life, that somebody believes in you. I was an overconfident, arrogant jerk when I was a kid. And yet still, I was insecure. And probably that overconfidence and arrogance came from some insecurity. But to hear somebody that was wiser than me that had been through it, to say that he believed in me. And many others have said it as well, but that was something that has never left my mind. And it was very, very meaningful in the difficult moments as well as the successful ones. I could go on and on about seeing a Samantop as well. That guy has been an absolute champion in my life.
0: It's incredible. I love that example that you gave. Do you have any favorite books? These can be books, articles, anything that you either try to go back to again and again, because it just really speaks with you, or anything that at some point in your life had a profound impact on you?
1: Most recently, the one that's had probably the most profound impact has been Power Versus Force by uh, David Hawkins. And I've just absolutely loved that one. I also really appreciated You Are the Placebo Effect by Joe Dispenza. I read that fairly recently. It's been a lot of great books, but I'm not strong enough to call myself an avid leader. I do also love Good to Great. So there's a few. I also love Atlas Shrugged. I mean, it's very binary, very black and white, but there's sort of this component of being an entrepreneur where you say, I've got to stand on my own. I got to do this. I don't get to rely on anybody else. It's sort of, I'm in the wind getting pushed and I got to go. And I think that has spoke to me at a very early age.
0: We'll link to all those in the show notes. I've not heard of power versus force or you are the placebo effect. So I'm excited to take a look at those.
1: Power versus force is mind blowing. And you are the placebo effect was the beginning point of healing my body.
0: Wow. Wow. Amazing. Okay, so we always ask the same two closing questions, and these are two of my favorite questions to ask. Can you share a favorite failure? And I think really what we're looking for when we ask that question is, so many times in our lives, we look at outcomes as super binary. And there are, especially in hindsight and reflection, so many times, and you talked about earlier, failing in a business, that that's absolutely not a failure. So is there in your life a favorite failure? Can be any sort, any variety.
1: Daniel, all my failures, I've appreciated. Some of them were really, really painful. Once I had a guy that was a partner on a deal, and he, through the construction process, changed the name very slightly to the general contractor that I was paying the bills to. And it turns out that this guy that was my partner, that was my operator on the ground, he set up a new company that looked like the general contractor. And so every time I send a check, he was cashing that check himself and giving the general contractor a smaller amount. And over a period of two or three years, he probably stole half a million to a million dollars from me. And that was really painful. The greatest way that it was most painful was I felt like this was somebody that I knew that I trusted that was a friend. And I found out that wasn't the case and it was devastating to my heart. The second greatest way is that it wasn't just my money. I had investors on it as well. And I had to confront with a very difficult conversation what had happened with that money to those investors. And you know, the flip side of it is that we still made money on the deal, so it took us a lot longer, and it caused me a lot of heartache and legal and all this kind of stuff, not things I want to participate in. But that's one that I think, when you're in the dumps, it's good to remember: like you can still claw your way out. I had to work a lot harder, but you can still claw your way out.
0: On that first one, I can only imagine just someone embezzling from you, especially over the course of years when they were your partner. How heart wrenching that is. And I have a friend in my life that has a quote that he says all the time. And it's really interesting. It's a really short question. This kind of seems not profound, but this also has a lot of profound levels to it, which is try to make sure at each point in your life that you're not learning the wrong lesson. And I imagine there's a lot of ways you can learn the wrong lesson from that situation. One could be I'm never going to trust anyone again. I'm never going to have a partner. I'm going to verify everybody. I'm going to constantly be monitoring. What did you take away from that? And how did you make sure you didn't learn the wrong lesson from an experience like that?
1: There's a lot of places I could take this question. And I'm going to take it just to one little corner. I could have left that and decided that I was going to micromanage the hell out of every relationship I ever had. And it would have been really logical to go that direction. And instead, I said, I'm going to structure deals, wherein our interests are completely aligned, such that we are going to win together. And in doing that, I know that I'll achieve their individual goal, as well as our collective goal together. And so I've driven even further from a management solution to an accountability, a goal setting, an aligned solution. I had that already going for me, and this guy that took money from me, as a result, he lost his share in the upside of that endeavor. And when it turned out that we sold the deal, he actually lost more than he gained because of how much share he lost. But that was a big moment for me to realize that alignment is everything. And particularly in this digital world that we have, if you're an entrepreneur and you wanna to try to micromanage your people right now, good luck, good luck. You better get them mission-driven, you better get them accountable to whatever their goal is. And if they work two times faster or four times faster than anybody else and they're doing some other things on the side, that's the reality that we're in. You're not gonna be able to track it, but you can track their results and don't penalize them for having great results just because you're not sure how much they're working. They should have upside on their ability just as you do.
0: Mm-hmm a ton of wisdom in that answer. And final question. I think you're going to have a great answer to this one. What is your definition of success?
1: Well, I don't think success is an end point. I mean, people say I'll been successful when this happens. No, I want success to be ongoing every day. I want it to be the journey. And so as I sit back and I reflect and I look at what I've done, even when I was dead broke or I wasn't married yet or whatever, I was successful because that was part of my journey. It was fulfilling. So yeah, my definition of success is fulfillment. My definition of fulfillment comes back to where I'm motivated as a human. That means I'm solving a problem and it means that I have the richest, most deep, beautiful relationships that I could ever possibly imagine with my parents, with my son, with my wife, with the the four or five brothers and sisters in my life that I get to call true, true brothers and sisters. And frankly, with the people that touch the little bit of my world that is my businesses and my other endeavors, for me, that's what's fulfilling, solving those problems and the meaningful relationships. And if I have that, I'll have success. I know, and I've always sort of felt that the money would follow and I need to follow passion first. Those are my passions. So that's the best I can do.
0: I mean, fantastic answers, fantastic interview. Thank you so much for the extra time, Ryan. This has been great.
1: All right. One question for you. What's your favorite nickname, Daniel? What's your favorite nickname?
0: I mean, the nickname that still sticks with me, I don't know if I'd call it my favorite, but it's definitely the most memorable, is all growing up, my last name is brutal. Like, literally, when I tell people how to spell it, the thing that helps the most is if I just say, it's a harsh German name. So, just like, don't try to finesse it. It's just like S-C-R-I-V-N. So, it's just this really, and people have butchered it all my life. And so, growing up, people would call me Scribbles. And if I could (laughs) carry that forward, I think that would be a pretty good nickname.
1: All right, Scribbles, (laughs) you're the man. It's going to be saved in my phone at Scribbles. (laughs) (laughs) thanks ryan all right
0: thank you so much for listening if you haven't already listen to ryan's full interview all about his journey as a serial entrepreneur and investor in episode 43 for links to everything we discussed as well as our notes and takeaways from the episode visit outlieracademy.com slash 43 To hear more incredible interviews with guests like Scott Belsky, Kevin Kelly, and the founders of Titan, Rally, and Primal Kitchen, go to outlieracademy.com to explore more episodes. There you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Outlier Debrief, where every Friday we share a few highlights from the latest episode, as well as our favorite articles, headlines, and moments from the week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.